Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger, and on this episode of Jill on Money, we're classing up the joint with Nigel Travis. Check out this accent. I think where some CEOs go wrong is they say but don't do. I think you have to go down. You have to talk to people in Washington, or it could be Sacramento if it's California. You have to go and see people, talk about it. It's no good just going and on the radio or the TV and saying this is what needs to happen. You need to explain your point of view. I, I think in many ways it goes back to civility. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. This is where you get a little bit of Jill on your money every single week, sometimes twice a week, sometimes three times a week. We are trying to help you make sense of your financial life one person at a time. It's also the show where I try to bring on guests who are really interesting, unconventional, maybe entertaining, and today is no different. We have Nigel Travis, who is the chairman of Duncan Brands. Duncan, right? Duncan Donuts, DD. You know, they change things around a little bit, but I'm just going to say, let's call it Duncan Donuts. He wrote a book called The Challenge Culture why the most successful organizations run on pushback. You know, I I thought this was a good thing to bring to you for the new year, especially for those of you who are potentially running divisions or maybe even just running your own small business. This guy has a really interesting outlook and one that I have not heard from a lot of C-suite executives. Plus, as Mark and I always note, uh, he's got a cool accent and that counts for a lot with us. Okay, so... If you have a financial question, don't forget, you can email us, askjill at jillonmoney.com, askjill at jillonmoney.com, and we would be delighted to get you on the air. And if you have any questions, you can always hop onto our website, jillonmoney.com. There you can sign up for our free newsletter, which Mark and I work very hard on. Let's be honest. I don't work that hard on it. Mark works very hard on it. So now here's our interview with Nigel Travis. You're listening to Jill on Money with Jill Schlesinger. Nigel Travis, welcome to the program. Thanks for being here. I'm delighted to be here in New York. You know, uh, we'll talk about your whole fandom around football, a.k.a. soccer, but I just want to let you know that the reason I got into college was that I was a center forward, a striker. Really? Yes, and I have the wrong body to play soccer, but you know what? It ended up that I was pretty good. And so I... You look very fit now. I'm so fit. You hear that, Mark? I'm an aging athlete. Everything's breaking down. It's ridiculous. Um, You've written a book called The Challenge Culture, Why the Most Successful Organizations Run on Pushback. So that's what you're here to talk about. Before we get started with that, I want to ask you a a question. We start every program and, and every guest. What is the best career or financial decision that you've ever made? Wow. That's... That's that that that's a tough one. That's an icebreaker, man. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, it was probably doing something. Uh, I've done many things in my life I never wanted to do, expected to do, and I think the first one was, and it's mentioned in the book, when my boss at Burger King, Barry Gibbons, said, "You're so involved in the business, you need to run something." I pushed back, obviously, and said, "No, no, I want to be the best HR person one can ever be." And as a result, he said, no, no, you're too involved in the business, too interested in the details, go and run something. So I went and ran something, and that was a great decision. And that's a really good piece of advice. I think that you may be among a very small cohort of HR 
professionals who move into the C-suite. Is that wrong of me to presume uh, that? Yeah. As uh, Mary, I've forgotten her second name at General Moses. Spent Barra. Some time, yeah, Barra. Spent some time in HR. Um, and there are two or three others that I've found. But I actually think it's a great introduction to business because business at the end of the day is all about people. I also recently bumped into a McDonald's franchisee and I asked this person the question, how much time do you spend on people? Because people's a big challenge. And he said 90%. And I think most people don't spend anywhere near that. I think it's interesting because when you look, if you look at the world and relationships and people, you know, you have to feel like the leader understands you, hears you, yet so much of the large corporate universe is around these numbers and the metrics. And it, it seems to be a real divisiveness mm -hmm. in the world, because if I'm holding your feet to the fire based on the numbers, but yet I don't know who the heck you are. You don't think I have anything else at stake here except the numbers. You don't care about me as a human being Then I'm not going to be as good a worker. So talk a little bit about how you develop this concept of the challenge culture. Well, yeah, I mean, as I said before, I started in human resources. In fact, I started in labor relations. And one of the benefits of starting in labor relations, called industrial relations in the UK, is you see what happens when things break down because you have conflict in in, in those days between management and unions. And But I learned the, the result, the bad results that can come. So I spent the first 20 years in human resources, and I learned that culture was very important. And, I, and the point... I keep making about the book is everyone focuses on the challenge, but not the culture bit. And there's two words there. And I think in, in, in many ways, the culture is the more important word. And then when I was at Grand Metropolitan, which was a big uh, British con conglomerate that owned all kinds of companies from Alpo to Pearl Vision to in the UK, bars, restaurants, breweries, betting stores, you name it. So we had a lot of companies. When I was there, I got promoted eventually to be the Group Management Development Director, and I worked with the then Chairman and CEO, Alan Shepard, and he had a style that was relatively aggressive, but with a good sense of humor. Uh, and it was actually described as the uh, light grip on the throat in newspaper articles. And he said, let's sit down and talk about how we want to run this organization. We sat down, and we had several sessions, and we talked about things like being action-oriented and focused on people. But the one that described that light grip on the throat, I came up with the, the term, the challenge culture. And I, I said, this is a much more better way of describing it. Uh, so that's when that first came on the scene. I never really thought any more about it until I was at Blockbuster, where despite what most people think, which is we completely dropped the ball, we didn't. We missed a few things because we were being tackled by technology all the time. Uh, we were owned by Viacom, which before we started, I said, overall was a great experience for me. And we had people like Sumner Redstone clearly very involved in the business. But we probably m missed how big Netflix was going to be. We definitely did miss that. And we eventually tried to catch up. So the whole challenge culture concept got reinforced there, where I said to myself, if you don't constantly challenge the status quo or, or challenge what you're doing every day, you're not doing the right thing. So it evolved from there. And then when I became a CEO, I implemented it. And essentially, the book tells all that story. And when you talk about culture, I mean, it's one thing for the CEO to say, this is what I want the culture to be, or that suited to your personality. 
I think the challenge, not to use your word, but but the the obstacle that I see in a lot of organizations is the CEO gets up and starts talking about culture, but then two, three, four levels down, that culture is not being permeated throughout the organization. So how do you do that? Okay, so great question. Um, I think you have to demonstrate it in everything you do. And you're right that a lot of people will sit there and say, okay, let's agree on our culture, have a big discussion, and then nothing happens. So the first thing is I'm vigorous on following up on everything. I mean, I, I'm probably one of the most aggressive follow-uppers there is. And, it, 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 and you don't have to be nasty with it. You can just say, uh, any progress on this? But I think you have to model it down the organizations. And an example I describe in quite a lot of detail in the book is what I call the coffee chat which is actually something that I started at Blockbuster, took it through Papa John's, and then used it at Dunkin'. Effectively, what it is, is taking people lower down the organization, usually below director level, uh, doing a diagonal slice of functions, 20 people in the room, and we basically say, okay, we're going to have the equivalent of a TV talk show. We're going to talk about subjects. You can talk about anything you want. You can talk about Dunkin' Donuts. You can talk about Baskin-Robbins. You talk about sales. You can talk about acquisitions. You can talk about the rumors about us being acquired. So I deliberately at the start open it up so there are no taboo subjects. I've even had meetings where I said, okay, I want to talk about the Me Too movement because it's important that you tell people there's no barriers. We then have a discussion. It isn't a Q&A of Nigel. Sometimes people try and make it, but the first thing I do is, I think that's a wonderful question. I have a view, but what do you think about that? So you don't want to put your voice into this before you hear from the person Perfect. you're speaking yeah, that's with, a good right? Way, that's a better way than I could describe it. You know, it's funny because what I, I love also that when you say here, I facilitate the discussion, I don't dominate it. I think that that's a really hard thing for strong-willed professionals to learn that in order to get somebody to open up to you, you gotta give them space. And if you don't give them space, why are they opening up in the first place? Uh, good point. I think that's where my HR background really helps because in HR, if you do the job properly, you should be doing a lot of listening. And my wife often says, well, you're interrupting when you're listening. I learned a long time ago to say things like, uh-huh, yes. Uh-huh. It's just, I'm with you. It's not blank space, and she and I have interesting debates about that That's point. it. That's interesting because someone said to me about the podcast that, well, we'll take listener calls, right? And mm-hmm. so someone's telling me their whole financial story, and we just do, like, a quick financial plan. And often I will say, uh-huh, I got it. I'm listening. Mm-hmm. I'm here, right? And I feel like it's a nervous tick on my part to let them understand that I'm listening to them and I'm not just letting them deliver a, a six-minute soliloquy and then I come in. So I like that. I feel like that's a check-in. That's a verbal cue saying to somebody, I'm here. Well, it's interesting that, you know, you've got headphones on while we're doing this interview. And I find I now do a lot of phone calls with headphones because the mobile to mobile connection is not always good. But it's important to know if someone's still there because calls get dropped. So I think I've reinforced that behavior just as a result of phone calls. Oh, that's funny. So... In those two-way conversations, in those coffee chats, you also make sure that things are civil. You don't, because you, you basically, in the, in the beginning of the book, say that you really, the discourse should be civil. Mm-hmm. And that seems like, first of all, so British, and I love that. I mean, not in your houses of parliament, which seems very non-civil. Uncivil at times. Uncivil, yes. indeed. I wonder how that, um, how you manage that in an age where 
civility seems to be going a bit down the drain. Civility is reinforced if you show that you're vulnerable and you're willing to expose yourself. And I think it's it's something I kind of do naturally now. Uh, I mean, I will say to someone, no, I believe we should do this or that. And the next question I seem to say automatically is, what do you think of that? And And I think civility is so important. I'm appalled with some of the stuff I see. I mean, you know, you sit and watch, it doesn't matter which channel, Fox News, CNN. Yeah, they're all shouting at each other. And someone said to me yesterday, the reason I listen to podcasts is you don't have all these discussions where you can't hear what they're saying because they're all cross-talking. So in the coffee chats, it is a very civil conversation. And you actually hear what people are saying. Isn't that kind of radical to actually hear what people are saying? It's interesting because um, you, you also said that you, you are willing to engage on tough topics. And it's fascinating to hear people say, well, off the record, here's what I think. But they don't want to they don't trust the organization mm-hmm. or the higher ups because they feel like nothing's going to change. Why would I put myself out there? It sounds to me like you your willingness to hear someone's worries, complaints, Mm -hmm. anxieties could raise some tough issues. So in that experience, did you ever have to tackle something that you were surprised by, um, had to act on? Did anything get raised up for you that you said, oh, my God, I didn't know that. I have to do something. We did have someone who, after a coffee chat, said, could I have a chat with you? They didn't want to put it out publicly. And uh, the issue wasn't big, but the person just wanted to raise it. Uh, we also had a few cultural issues in some other countries because sometimes the American culture doesn't match the local one. Mm. And we delved into it, worked it out. and it, it was a very nice accommodation because, you know, other countries look at it very differently from America. Sometimes you just have to get all the facts on the table, recognize that our culture here in America, and despite the fact I sound very British, I but they may that may be a different cultural approach from what happens, say, in Italy or the Middle East or somewhere else. So when you have um, these conversations, how do you filter it back to your management team? Oh. What is, how do you do that? Well, A, that's important. And what I do is I actually have an independent person who is young from corporate communications who takes the notes. I don't take the notes. She writes the notes. And... I, and we don't say that Jill said this or Fred said that. It's this point was went on and the group discussed this point and the group's view was mm-hmm. now it's not necessarily a statistically valid sample because some of the group may have been quiet. And then what I do is I send the notes to our leadership team. Hmm. And then if it's something that's really critical, I'll go back to my follow up. I'll follow up and say, what are we doing about this? How important do you think in your leadership the role of speaking out in the public square about things going on? You got into a bit of hot water talking about immigration. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering how you feel that corporate America's responsibility towards speaking out when you see something you disagree with. It used to be 100 years ago when you know, companies were kind of muddling along and doing their business. No one wanted to take a stand. How do you view that responsibility as a C-suite executive? Well, 
it's it's fascinating because I think I got nailed twice in one year. One was on immigration, as you point out, and that's in the book. Another one was about minimum wage. This country has a remarkably open government. I mean, I don't think it's anywhere else in the world that you can go down to Washington and meet people who are truly important and talk to them in a very open and candid manner. So I think this country doesn't get the credit it deserves for that. Uh, and it doesn't really matter which administration. I've been down there in the Obama administration and talked to very important people. In this administration, I've had excellent dialogues with people like uh, Secretary Acosta, the Labour Secretary, um, the Small Business Administrator, Linda McMahon, etc., etc. So I think it's very open. I, I think where some CEOs go wrong is they say but don't do. I think you have to go down, you have to talk to people in Washington, or it could be Sacramento if it's California, or you could go down to the state house in Boston. You have to go and see people, talk about it. It's no good just going in on the radio or the TV and saying this is what needs to happen. You need to explain your point of view. I, I think in many ways it goes back to civility. I think CEOs do have to stand and give their views. I think government needs to hear it. But the key thing is government, whatever government is, it could be the EU, it could be um, the White House, it could be a, a state senate or the governor or whatever. You need to say it to them face to face so that they clearly understand your point. And I think a good example of that is, you know, we have franchisees. We represent franchisees. I've got 2,000 globally. And when the whole tax reform bill was going through, we made the point about the pass-through taxation, and and the end result was I think we made a difference by making our point. Mm. But it was only by constantly going there and talking, and again, I, I reinforce, I found both parties to be amazingly receptive to talking to people. I have to just like pivot a little bit here because you, you have a, a, a section on napping, which I thought was the most wonderful thing for someone who wakes up at four o'clock in the morning oh you do do you yes there we go high-fiving it's exhausting to two for to have two o'clock roll around for me so yeah. talk about your napping habits <laughs> well yeah i mean i tend not to sleep too long I, I, I like to go to bed at 10 10 that's already an hour past my bedtime well okay there you go uh, so i go to bed at say 10 i, I tend to read the times London, so I get tomorrow's news today. Mm -hmm. um, and then I tend to wake up four or five, something like that. And then if you work really hard by about two, you feel tired. Exhausted. So I have a nap. I've done it in the office. I, I do it at home. When I travel, and I've always traveled a lot, I mean, the last few years, and it'll probably drop a bit now, I've done 140 flights a year. I can sometimes nap three or four times a day for a quick burst of 10 minutes. Here's why you have to nap, everyone. Napping increases your alertness. Napping improves your accuracy. Napping helps you make better decisions. Napping fattens your bottom line. Napping boots your creativity. This is interesting. I love that part. Napping allows your brain to create the loose associations necessary for creative insight and opens the way for a fresh burst of new ideas. I have found that to be true myself because sometimes in the afternoon I take a little nap, I'll go take my dogs out for a walk, and then I have a great idea for an article or a column or a segment. And it's right at that moment, around 4 or 5 o'clock, that many of my ideas come to fruition. Well, here's another example. It's not napping. 
sometimes I'm in a meeting and say it's an intense meeting and let's make up a subject where we're in a meeting talking about Indonesia, okay. just to pick a country, right? And it's an intense meeting trying to figure out what to do. I will deliberately go the 70 yards from my office to the bathroom and then come back. I will think of something that's completely different just by that sheer detachment from the problem. And and one of the things I talk about somewhere in the book, I think, is hovering above a problem. Mm-hmm. That's a form of hovering. You take yourself out of the immediate challenges and you give yourself a perspective and the, that allows you to look outside to in. Are there environments where the questioning is hard? For example, you know, whatever. I'm a voyeur. I love asking questions. I'm interested. You can tell already, right? But there are a lot of people who feel a shyness. Mm -hmm. How do you get a shy introvert to feel comfortable with a questioning culture? Well, good question. And I find sometimes it's about your own exposure. Uh, I talk in the book about a psychological tool that's been around forever, and it's very simple, called the Jahari window. Mm -hmm. And there's basically two axes on the way they measure people's arena. One is feedback and one's exposure. And I think you need to expose yourself, which, by the way, doesn't mean taking your clothes off. It means uh, it means showing you're a little bit vulnerable. I mean, you may tell a story about how you screwed up at work today, and then you perhaps can go in through your weakness to them, and that and people then laugh about it. It makes them more relaxed. So I think I'm I'm fortunate. I'm British. Self-deprecation is something that we're quite good at in Britain. All right, let me do a quick, um, You should go, we'll have a link to the book, The Challenge Culture, Why the Most Successful Organizations Run on Pushback. And there's also a great checklist at the end for uh, creating a challenging culture, which I think is awesome. But before we let you go, I've got a lightning round of questions that I wrote down before. This is always frightening. I know, right? <laughs> What's your favorite fast food? Oh, that's a tough one. Well, um, I have to say... Going back in my time, I think, besides all our Dunkin' products, I'd say the Whopper. The Whopper. Okay. What's your favorite fast food that is British only? It's a great concept in Britain called Leon. Okay. Which is uh, fresh, healthy, fast food. Okay. Very good, Mark says. Okay. My favorite fast food in the UK, I don't even think it exists anymore, Spud You Like. Oh, yeah. Wasn't uh, it? Jackets? Yeah, I mean, it's funny you should say that because I, I went somewhere the other day and they they had the spuds and I was thinking, wow, you don't see many of those now. That's right. Spud you like. Fantastic. Every pub used to have them. It's amazing. Okay, let's get into that. Favorite British ale? Hmm. I'm not really a beer drinker. What are you? What's your beer of choice? What's your drink of choice? Uh, red wine. And, and, and what hold on. What a snob. I'm, I love that. And, and bourbon. Okay, favorite bourbon. Um, Woodford Reserve. I used to live in Louisville. Really? Um, I'm very partial to the Widow Jane. I like that. And I also like, I just had a new one. I had to think about the name of that. I'll get back to it. Here's a great uh, idea for a party. I've done it. Yeah. You get like 12 bourbons. Yeah. Invite people around. It's a great way to get the party going. Favorite Baskin Robbins flavor? Oh, I'm incredibly boring. Don't say vanilla. I am. Jeez Louise. He's so uh, British. Um, my favorite, Jamocha Almond Fudge. Always a classic. Favorite Dunkin' Donut, Donut. Boring again, glazed. glazed. Oh, my God. I know. Unbelievable. I, um, I need to change. You really do. You were also the CEO of Papa John's. Best slice of pizza in New York City, do you know? 
Do you mm. have one? No, but I'll tell you the best pizza at Papa John's is barbecue chicken. That is disgusting. I right. clearly need to think more. I need to challenge my food choices Don't more. Don't you think? Okay. <laughs> uh, last but not least, before you leave, we started the program. I said, what was your best career or financial decision? And you said getting this advice to leave HR and go run mm-hmm. an, a business. What about your worst? Um, well, pro- probably I have to go back to the Blockbuster example where we could have bought Netflix for $50 million. And, Stop and it. Viacom said, why don't you go out and buy it? And we said, no, it's it's a fad. Uh, and, you know, whatever day you look at it, Reed Hastings, who's done an unbelievable job there, I think it's now worth $160 billion. Um, So uh, I'm not sure it was advice, but I, I am accountable along with some others for that decision. I would say that every major media company had that same opportunity and passed. Nigel Travis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jill. You're listening to Jill on Money. Welcome to the Jill on Money Call of the Week. Remember, if you've got a financial question, it could be about anything. Just shoot us an email. It's so easy. Ask Jill at JillOnMoney.com. Ask Jill at JillOnMoney.com. That is what Matt did. He is calling from South Carolina. Hello, Matt. What can I do for you? Jill, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Sure. I really appreciate it. I um, have been listening to your podcast, like binging for about a month. Nice. Uh, I, I've I've gotten pretty far. I'm, I just started 2018 and uh, listened to last year's New Year Resolution pod. I loved it. And um, I am I would consider myself pretty money illiterate. I've been learning a good bit on the podcast, and the more I've listened to your people who call in, I haven't quite heard anyone with my situation yet. So I was wondering. Uh, you know, some advice you might have for me. Sure. So give us a rundown. What's going on for you? Well, I am about to turn 30 in a couple weeks. I am a uh, college student. Uh, I took all the courses I could take at a community college to save money, transfer into a four-year university for the rest of my studies. Mm -hmm. And I have, this might give you anxiety, I have no savings. I barely have a 401k. I I have about $10,000 worth of credit card debt. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, I also have a fiance who I'm marrying later this year, and um, we already live together. And you know, my debts, her debt, vice versa, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to figure out. Okay, I, I know I'm not going to be able to pay off this debt while I'm in school, especially since I plan on um, trying to go down to part time while I do full time schoolwork. Yeah. So I'm trying to figure out once I graduate, what steps should I take to get myself out of the hole and start, you know, planning towards retirement because i've heard on the show you said some people like maybe not necessarily pay off all your debt first before you start saving i wasn't quite sure what steps i should take yeah you know it's so hard i i have had an evolving view on this a bit so you're you're turning 30 you're getting an education which is great so let's just run down a couple of things so you said you have ten thousand dollars in credit card debt right um you also have student loans uh, I will. I don't. Yeah, actually, it's weird. The reason I have that much credit card debt is because the community college, uh, both myself and my fiance, uh, currently attend, does not accept federal student loans. Huh. And my credit card rate was, you know, I mean, it's like ten uh, percent. Mm-hmm. Not and bad. And there's just not a whole lot that I I understood about, uh, you know, those third party student loans. Yeah. And in my mind, I thought, well, I'll just use my credit card and try to pay it off. 
All right. Hasn't quite worked out that way. Yeah, I know. Um, but uh, I have made I haven't missed any payments or anything like that. But I haven't been able to really pay down the debt too much. Right. When you go back full time, right? You're going to be in school mm-hmm. full time. You will then be able to borrow money through the federal student loan program. Uh, yes, because I, I'm uh, transferring to a four year university who does do federal student loans and all that. Great. In your, you know, kind of guesstimate, you'll, co- you'll go in as what year? As a sophomore or a junior? Where are you going to go in as? Technically a sophomore. I have to take one class to become a junior that they didn't offer to. The, All right. So we'll get you. Class. So junior year, I think that's, that, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So you need to borrow money for two years, right? Mm-hmm. And so how much will that be? Worst case scenario, yeah. if I get none of the scholarships I'm applying for, yeah. I think about 30000 by the time I'm graduated. Okay, so it'll be 30 plus the 10 on the credit card, right? Yes. Okay, let's now, give me the no fiance's idea. numbers as well. What does she have? Look, there's not there's not a whole lot with her. Mm. Um, we've been living together for a while, and um, she uh, she had some early credit card issues as well in her early 20s, and um, she doesn't, uh, how do I put this, she doesn't quite know what all she owes. Um, I think it was kind of a case where she just was spending money and not really paying close attention to it. And, um, like I know for, for instance, more or less all of our financial stuff, uh, she more or less turned that over to me mm-hmm. to handle. And, uh, I haven't been able to even look at what she has going on. And, um, she isn't hundred percent sure what all of her debts are that she owes. Okay. That was another question I was going to ask you is like, when I get to a situation where we could start cleaning up her credit, we don't. I don't even know who to go to to figure out what all I need to do. Yeah, well, she and you are going to have to sit down and try to figure that piece out, obviously. One way to right. do it, maybe, is to start by just pulling her credit report, annualcreditreport.com, and mm-hmm. see what's on there. See if there are names on there that, you know, she may not even realize. And maybe try to tally up, like, exactly what you guys owe and and see where you go from there. Does she have any money in the bank or not? No. So, okay, here's how you start out. You're both going to pull annualcreditreport.com right now just to see what's mm-hmm. what's on that report, and that might give you a clue about what she has. The second thing okay. you're going to do is you are both going to start tracking how much money that you ha- are spending. This does not mean you need a budget. There are a couple of free apps that are available that you can try this with. I don't know if you do this or not, but Intuit, they've got Mint. Uh, Marcus by Goldman Sachs bought Clarity Money last year. That is one. Um, Those are two very good free apps that help you track the money that's going in and going out. Very important for you guys, because especially during these years during college, you'll be a bit in forbearance. But when those loans come due, then boom, you're going to have a big chunk of money that has to go out to repaying this debt. And only by understanding exactly what's coming in and going out can you really get your arms around it. And I think that's important. I mean, I'm not freaking out because you don't have savings. You're 30 years old. You'll get there. You're going to have a job. That's going to be fantastic. But from from this point forward, the big questions that you guys have to answer are twofold. One is, you know, how are we spending money? And then... The second thing is, what exactly do we owe and to whom? And as you start tracking your money, what you'll be able to look at is to see, well, how much do we have any extra money? Like if I got the if I had the ability to pay a little extra towards a credit card, which one would I choose? You choose the highest interest and pay it down. 
while I'm in forbearance, do I need to start paying these student loans off? No, you don't. I think that your first task as financial grownups is essentially to get your arms around where you stand. That's all you need to do. And you said you have an old retirement plan. Tell me a little about that. It's not much. It's a, a 401k uh, at my current employer, and I hadn't been contributing anything to it, but my job automatically does 3% no matter what you do. Mm-hmm. And so they've been contributing this whole time, and I have like $3,000 in there. Okay. But you're not. But you're going to leave that job when you go back to school full-time, right? Yeah. Uh, this summer, like I, I'm going to school right uh, soon, but it's only part-time. Mm-hmm. Once I start going full-time, this summer I plan on leaving my job and working part-time. Okay. Doing like Postmates or something like that. All right. So any money that you have coming in has to go to paying your bills. And if there's any money left over, try to crack down on that credit card debt. So here's what the game plan is for you guys. One is get a hold of your money. Number two is start paying down the credit card debt as much as you can. If you can't, you can't. I get it. Number three is start funding an emergency reserve fund just a little bit, even if it's like literally 50 bucks a month. Get in the habit of putting that money aside. Don't worry about retirement right now. You've got these big three things that you have to think about. And if you do those and you get yourself to a place where you're you're basically starting out, it's like I'm giving you the advice that I give to every college graduate. Grab hold of your debt, figure out what you owe. Pay down your highest interest loans down to your lowest interest loans. That's your priority. Highest interest first. For you, that'll be credit card debt. And make sure you understand when repayment starts on your student loans. Don't pay any money towards those student loans while you're in school. You don't have to. And then create an emergency reserve fund so you have something to fall back on. But those are your, that's what you have to do. You don't have to master investing. You don't have to do anything else. Those are your to-do items. I wish you all the best. Keep us posted because, you know, we might want to, we might want to hear how you're doing. Okay. Will do. Thanks. All right. Take care. Thanks so much to Nigel Travis. The book is called The Challenge Culture. And our caller, Matt. Don't forget, we drop new episodes of Jill on Money every Tuesday and Thursday, sometimes a little extra in your feed. You like the new cover art? I do. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is the executive producer. We are distributed by Cadence 13, and we'll talk to you next week.